Hello, welcome to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast for uh, the Banshee Chapter with director Blair Erickson. My name is Tom Chick, and this is something a little different than we normally do. We will bring you our regularly scheduled podcast and podcast format shortly. Uh, but first, uh, I'd like to explain what this is and why it's happening. Um, I recently watched a an indie horror movie. I watched it specifically because I saw in the cast list uh, a recognizable actor who I enjoy, a fellow named Ted Levine. Uh, we all know Ted Levine and his voice, very distinctive fellow. My thinking, seeing his name in the, the cast list for this movie from someone I'd never heard of, I didn't even bother looking at the synopsis. This is a lot of times how I'll find a movie, is I'll either recognize the director or someone in the cast who I think specifically wouldn't do some throwaway horror movie. So I see Ted Levine's name, and I think, okay, well, this should be interesting. I watched a movie called The Banshee Chapter, um, and quite liked it. I posted a review on the front page of Quarter to Three of the site that hosts this podcast. So uh, shortly thereafter, someone tweeted... Uh, retweeted a tweet I'd, I'd made announcing the, the review. And the fellow who retweeted it was actually the director of the movie. Uh, so uh, it occurred to me, maybe I could click on his tweet profile, all this is kind of new to me, uh, and find some way to reach him because I liked the movie enough that I had some questions about it, that I wanted to talk to the guy who made it. Uh, I wanted to know some of what he was thinking and why he did certain things and the process of stuff. Uh, when I see a movie that kind of gets its hooks into me, uh, I really like talking about it. And who better to talk about it with than the guy who made it? So I, I clicked on Blair Erickson's Twitter profile. Sure enough, it had a link to his uh, website. And sure enough, the website had an email contact. So I clicked on the email contact, and I sent him a little email saying, Hi, uh, you know, you were kind enough to retweet my review. Uh, I do a movie podcast as well. Would you be interested in chatting with me about Banshee Chapter as an episode of the podcast? Sent him the email, fully expected to not hear anything back. Um, you know, it's an indie film, but it was a, a sizable production company. Uh, you know, it had Ted Levine in it. That's a celebrity. So I didn't think he'd get back to me. But sure enough, within an hour, uh, Blair emailed me back and said, yeah, sure. How's tomorrow afternoon sound? So what follows is my conversation with Blair Erickson, the director of Banshee Chapter, uh, a horror movie which I, I definitely recommend. Uh, I want to let you know, though, in case you're considering seeing it, it is a horror movie. It's it's a low-budget horror movie. Uh, it's got some kind of gaps where you can sort of see some things that they wanted to do, but they couldn't quite manage with the, the level of the production. Um, but if you're into low-budget indie horror, none of that should matter uh, because it's got a great script. Uh, the cast is fantastic. There are some genuinely effective creepy moments. There are jump scares, which I don't know how I feel about, but uh, Blair did a good job of defending his use of jump scares. Um, and uh, so I would almost say if, if you can deal with horror as a genre, if you're a fan, don't listen to any more, don't read anything else, just go see uh, Banshee Chapter. It's on video on demand right now. Uh, if you're still not sold, uh, you can listen to my conversation with Blair. We're going to talk more generally about it, and before we get into any specific spoilers, we will warn you. Um, so you can listen and wait until the spoiler warning and uh, decide if there's anything you hear that, that makes you want to see it there. 
Uh, as I said, our regular podcast will be posted shortly, so this is not replacing our normal weekly movie. Uh, and we'd like to do more of these in the future. So uh, sit back, enjoy my conversation with Blair Erickson, and uh, hopefully as well, uh, enjoy Banshee Chapter. some transmedia stuff Mm -hmm. uh but this is your first feature film right uh you don't see a lot of horror movies that are about lsd and hunter thompson type characters uh this isn't the usual horror fodder so tell me about your inspiration for the banshee chapter um, I think it, you know, uh, it had been an idea just kind of sitting in the back of my head for a long time. And, um, I think it originally just started with reading about the MK Ultra project and realizing that it, it was one of those strange sort of like, it felt like the setup for a horror movie. Um, it, it, you know, was a, it was a terrible thing that had, you know, caused uh, personal destruction and death and, no one had ever been charged with it, and the and the people behind it were very these sort of faceless entities um, that you know never faced legal repercussions and um, sort of just walked walked away as if this was you know um, a crime too terrible to sort of deal with. And uh, I I was fascinated by that, and, and I think at the time it was. Um, the early years of the Bush administration. And the, and that was when, of course, the, the the initial rumors and things about the NSA spying on Americans had started to come out. Um, and, you know, at the time, I don't think a lot of people took it very seriously. But, you know, to me, I, there was a lot of credible evidence. And I thought, wouldn't a great sort of metaphor for how our government has this sort of, you know, awful presence lurking within it be, you know, to go back and look at, when it really started, when, you know, in the, in the mid 20th century, when we first started letting these things happen and just assuming they would go away and they would never come back to haunt us. Um, and I think, you know, that this was the great, a great sort of setup for a, a very timely comment on where we are now. Well, it must have been very fortuitous timing with all the, the revelations about the NSA wiretapping program and stuff. I mean, yeah, you yeah. couldn't have planned better publicity in a way. For, yeah, people for, had asked us about that when because, you know, there's that one scene in the film where she's confronting that guy and she says, didn't you used to work for the NSA? And there's this very weird sort of like MacGuffin thrown into that scene. And people said, how did you, you know, because the movie was obviously shot way before the Snowden thing. How did you know about that? Like, how did you know to like sort of throw that little weird tip of the hat in there and there? And it was like, you know, this stuff wasn't really secret. Like Snowden was, you know, one of many people who came forward. Snowden was just the one who got the most attention. But if any Americans had actually been paying attention, if the media had really been doing their job, all of this stuff was an open secret you could find. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. uh, and and it was definitely something we were stumbling on as we were sort of researching intelligence agencies and what they were up to. So what you've <laughs> got here is a, is a solid conspiracy story, uh, mm-hmm. but but Banshee chapter makes it very clear early on that this is not just conspiracy stuff; right. that it's a supernatural horror film. How, right. how did that twist come about? How did that become part of the story you wanted to tell? It was, um, you know, all, all, there was a lot of also reading about dimethyltryptamine and people talking about, you know, it opening up pathways to alternate dimensions. And, um, you know, I think there's actually a lot of really, in some ways, positive, interesting research done on dimethyltryptamine. Um, but it was very, it was just very intriguing. And I, and I thought, okay, but what would that chemical be connecting to if it was in the hands of people who wanted to use it as a weapon? Um, what, you know, yes, it's, it's meant to connect to alternate dimensions, but when you put it in the hands of people who are, you know, intending to do, uh, harm, and, and in, in the case of the CIA, the, what the goal of the program was, was they were trying to figure out a way to hollow out a, a person, to sort of kill their inside consciousness and, and soul and, and anything inside them, like, you know, thought-wise, and to create like a puppet person that they could sort of manipulate and control. That was the, the goal of the program, and I thought, what kind of dimensions would those people be connecting with um, under those circumstances? And, you know, why not something straight out of, like, the H.P. Lovecraft handbook on, you know, terrible alternate dimensions? And and you don't directly – I don't think you actually say the name of the story. There's the awesome bit where Ted Levine is explaining to uh, uh, Katya Winter. Is that her name? Yes. Is, yes. is explaining to Katya, you know, the, I think he's basically telling her about the story from beyond. Uh, yes, and I don't think he yes. specifically That's mentioned exactly it. What he, yeah. He's okay. exactly describing that story. I figure Lovecraft fans know the story. In the scene, it would be a little bit too on the nose if he knew the exact name of the story, but was just sort of referencing it. Well, well what it strikes me, uh, Blair, is that you've basically made a, a modern day version of from beyond. Uh, mm-hmm. it, now, yeah. And then you know, do you know Stuart Gordon did that? I guess back in the eighties. Do you know that from Beyond? Absolutely. I mean, that was one of the films I grew up with, um, and uh, I think Reanimator and From Beyond by Stuart Gordon. I think um, was it Brian Yunzna? Uh, those were kind of the films that first intrigued me about. Okay, who is this H.P. Lovecraft that they're making these movies about? Um, and, uh, you know, then, you, you know, you, you go to John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness and all these great horror films sort of tip their hat. So you start reading through the stories and you're like, wow, this guy, you know, uh, so many decades ago was already sort of tapping into this great sort of paranoid, strange, um, alternate dimension stuff. And I think it was one of those where the story naturally had the structure of From Beyond. So it made sense that they, you know, as a writer, that would be the story that Blackburn would reference right um, when thinking about like hey what is this like um, well I, I have to say my I have a very similar experience seeing reanimator as a kid being freaked out by that and wanting to know where did this come from what's this Lovecraft thing uh, yeah. and then reading the stories but being a little shocked at how Stuart Gordon's interpretations are, are about the least Lovecraftian thing I've ever seen. Because what I recall from From Beyond is basically Barbara Crampton slinking around in that leather corset, and there's nothing like that in Lovecraft. Lovecraft is almost completely asexual. Um, yeah, so and the story is very short, too. The original From Beyond, I think, is only, I think it's only a handful of pages. I haven't read it in years, but I, if I remember correctly, it's a very short story. Yeah, but, but I feel like you've taken... Uh, Banshee chapter feels much more Lovecraftian than I feel anything Stuart, Stuart Gordon stuff feels like Stuart Gordon stuff. One of the things I really loved about Banshee chapter is it really did feel like a, a latter day story 
that was inspired by Lovecraft. And one of the ways that I feel you expressed it really well, um, the overwhelming sensation for me in Banshee Chapter, even though you do a lot of jump scares, there's a lot of creepy stuff, you linger very specifically on these these sad moments. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I get this sense of sadness and, and sort of loss yeah. and certainly craziness, but but yeah. there's something way more poignant uh, to Banshee Chapter than than in a lot of horror movies, and certainly than in a lot of Lovecraft expressions. And and there's a lot of that in Lovecraft as well. Is the, these are sort of lonely men doing research. Uh, you can sort of extrapolate from his own life some of these characters uh, and discovering horrible things. Um, kind of living loveless, lonely lives adrift in the in the cosmos, kind of. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that's exactly the feeling that he he, he goes for, and I and I definitely think that we was something you know we were consciously kind of playing with, because yeah, I think that is what sets up a lot of his um, paranoia and anxiety is these isolated people who you don't know who to trust, and you know it, it usually in a in the Lovecraft stories are in a town where. They can't quite get the truth out of anybody, and they don't really understand what's happening. Um, and that that confusion and anxiety sort of propels the horror forward. And in this case, I think we we were interested in, in recreating that where you you as the audience never knew any more than the main character did, and it was always sort of this anxious, confusing, weird feeling of paranoia. Who do you trust? What's really happening here? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the the I think the um, very Lovecraftian uh, staple of something kind of wants to take you over and do something really bad with you. That that line that I think Callie first has it, it wants to wear me or it wants to wear us. Right. Uh, is that is that from Lovecraft? Because that just that that's this chilling moment and that's this great expression of the the basic premise of the movie. Uh, yeah. Um. You know, I don't. I don't. I don't know if that actually came out of any Lovecraft stories. For me, I think when I was writing it, it was more about. Thinking about the the entity in the film, you know, the sort of unexplained entity, as being this malevolent force whose goal was exactly the same as what the U.S. government's goal was in that research experiment. Oh, um, like the puppet is, thing you were talking. Yeah, about. to create yeah, the, right. to create puppet people. Um, right. <laughs> and uh, so I think it, it just nicely dovetailed with that. And uh, then, of course, it also sort of had the the ability, like a little bit of um, what I saw at the time, is the is the sort of the NSA thing where. It, it, it's always watching you and it's always trying to, um, it, it follows you everywhere. There's no, there's no escaping it and it's this ubiquitous presence that's just sort of constantly lurking and trying to get inside your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, now let, let's talk a bit about some of the, the background stuff with, uh, the, the details of, of casting and shooting. Uh, w- one of the, the fundamental things that makes Banshee Chapter work, uh, is I feel your cast. And a lot of horror movies, they'll just yeah. like cast someone pretty and, and have them do whatever they have to do and scream and run, whatever. Uh, yeah. you, I think early on it's very clear that Katya Winter, the actress, uh, has a, a sense of gravity about her. I mean, she's a lovely right. woman, but she's not just a lovely woman. You, you get the sense that she is, and, and part of it is the accent, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> you, get, you get the sense that, that she's smart, that she's determined, that she definitely feels this connection with, um, is, is it James? I may be screwing up the names. Yeah, no, James. It's James. James. Yeah. yeah. And that, that, that's an important part. And, and it even makes scenes work where you just have shots of her sitting in the desert listening or flipping through, through books or, or whatnot. Um, so that casting right there serves the movie immensely. Uh, what was? How did you go about casting your actress? Just the standard audition process? Had you seen Katya in other stuff? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, was, you know, to be honest, it was quite hard to find um, an actress on Katya's level. Um, 
it was, you know, it was a process of just kind of digging through. I mean, I knew I wanted someone who was um, British or at least able to, you know, believably play someone British. Kati is actually technically Swedish, but, you know, she uh, has that perfect British accent. Um, and I think a lot of that was, you know, to believe uh, that a, an investigative journalist would be that serious about a subject, you kind of have to believe they're British. Um, which is, <laughs> it, it was one of those things where I, the the Glenn Greenwald thing, uh, you know, writing for the Guardian worked, you know, ironically because for some reason American journalists just wouldn't care this much. They right. would just be like, yeah, the U.S. government. I mean, they would have that sort of Blackburn attitude. U.S. government does terrible things. What are you going to do? Um, <laughs> you know, we just we just accept this. This is America. Um, and uh, I think to to see that sort of passion, um, you had to believe that this was sort of an outsider from uh, the UK. And finding Katya was, um, we went through hundreds, maybe, you know, many hundreds of uh, reels of different actresses. And there was very few people who you thought that person could bring the sort of gravitas to that character that can make the crazy insanity around it seem believable because... You know, I think too often in horror films, they like to cast people who are just, you know, a pretty face and they just really don't commit. They don't go, you know, they don't bring that sort of emotional intensity to the role. Um, and, she, and she was, you know, um, a long, it was after, you know, the long process, we finally found her and um, finding her, I think, is what really pulled the whole thing together. Because I think if we had cast anybody else, they wouldn't have been able to. Um, not only to bring that energy and that seriousness, but also I don't think they would have been able to uh, deliver the performance as as quickly as she did. Where we, you know, we were on a tight shoot that, you know, first take every time she was bringing something incredible to the build. We never had like a false take with her where you just said, "Oh, I don't," I didn't. she just didn't get it. It wasn't like we had to do a lot of directing with her. She showed up and it was just like she was in the role and it just clicked every time. How, how long uh, of a shoot was it, by the way? It's about 28 days in the deserts of New Mexico. Okay. Uh, and now, of course, uh, halfway through, the, uh, a third or so, partway through the movie, uh, when Ted Levine comes in, it, it co- takes a completely unexpected direction. Uh, yes. And just the energy, the different energy the two of them bring. Uh, so that, of course, must have been a huge coup. How does a first-time filmmaker get his hands on Ted Levine? Um, it was, you know, we, we drew up a list of all the people we thought could play Blackburn, you know, and it was an eclectic, strange, you know, bunch of, mm-hmm. you know, really fascinating actors, and he was the number one on the list. So I said, alright, let's, let's send him the script, and whatever, whatever, um, reason it worked for him, it worked instantly. Like, we got a call almost right away from him that he was in. Um, he, I think he just got what we were trying to do, and he got the sort of oddball, multi-dimensional facet of that character where on some level he's comic relief, on some level he's creepy, on some level he's just um, a sort of a, as one critic put that, that sort of fun, you know, train conductor on a train going to, uh, you know, crazy town. Um, And, uh, yeah, I think think there's very few people who could have pulled that role off, and we were, you know, very lucky that uh, it, it clicked so well with him. Well, I can certainly tell, too, in some of the, the scenes, like at the bar, at his house, when they're taking the DMT uh, on the car in the desert, it seems like you're just kind of letting them riff off each other. You get to do these longer takes. Uh, they clearly have some chemistry, and mm-hmm. you're just letting the camera sort of capture it. Uh, mm-hmm. it. It seems like, you know, that, yeah, what a, what a wonderful asset for, for the movie. For yeah, the I, we, story. I think, you know, when it with a lot of these, you 
you you want to push towards you get the first take where they go okay you're going to say it like as it is in the script and then after that you kind of give them different directions they can push and pull it and let them kind of create a, a bigger scene that that you know they can explore their characters a little bit more and do some things that aren't necessarily as as expected as you'd think and i think that's where a lot of those magical moments come out of because you know ted does a lot of you know really unexpected stuff and um <laughs> One of the, actually, I think one of the best moments of this was we were, you know, we were on the set and Katya was, you know, coming, she was doing that scene where she's running from the house, um, in terror from, um, the thing under the stairs. Uh-huh. And we just were started talking to Ted and we were like, you know, what if, <laughs> what if you're not waiting in the car, um, you know, normally as we'd expect, but you instead pop up from the back seat. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, he kind of came up with like how to, how to execute that on a level where it just worked in that moment of that deflating of the, I think the tension where he, you know, pops up screaming and, 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 you know, he has that perfect deadpan delivery of, oh, you scared me. Um, and, you know, Katya's reaction to that was so genuine because I think she, he really did scare the hell out of her when he jumps <laughs> up in the backseat like that. Um, and all those kind of great little moments that he does, there were so many little quirky, oddball touches that he added to that character that I think really bring the, you know, cartoonish nature uh, to a different level of real uh, that uh, have to have to give Ted a lot of credit for, for doing that on the character. Uh, one of the touches I want to mention now, if you're listening and you haven't seen Banshee chapter, I would, I would almost uh, suggest that uh, you go ahead and skip over some of this next part. Cause I want to talk about some very specific spoiler things that if you haven't seen it, which I do recommend yeah. Uh, would ruin it for you. So if you're listening, pause you haven't it seen right it. now. Pause it right now. Go watch pause it. it. Back. Listen to the rest. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so w- one of the the touches that uh, I really appreciated on a second viewing, Blair, was uh, Ted's line reading right before he shoots himself, where he apologizes to Anne. And again, it gets to this idea of sadness. It's this. Like, he apologizes, and it's this kind of sense of resignation. Like, you know, I've brought you as far as I can. Sorry, you're on your own. It's almost like. Like Gandalf handing off a, the quest to, to Bilbo Baggins or something, but there's yeah. almost this kind of paternal element to it. But it's this—it's just his line reading. Um, and that wasn't even a line reading. We actually shot multiple versions of that scene, and that was one where I think Ted just sort of went with that line. He just tried that. Um, that was just him trying to see what that would feel like uh, when we did that scene. And that was, you know, that was a pretty intense scene to shoot, and um, it was pretty rough on the actors just because it was, you know, it was a pyro going off in their face and things like that um and he just sort of approached it from um you know i think maybe subconsciously the character may have felt a lot of guilt realizing what he had done Ah. Uh, you know possibly there's a lot of different um ways you can interpret that i think but his his choice in that i think was the exact right beat for that character uh and when you say that, Blair, I no. think of the, the moment where uh, Anne hands him the picture of James and says, yeah. he, you know, do you, do you recognize him? Uh, he went missing. And he mm-hmm. he really sort of stops doing the whole Hunter Thompson wacky thing and says, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Like, it's this right. great the little honest moment. Off for, there's like a brief moment where you almost feel like the, I think the glasses come off and, and, the, and, the, and the sort of bullshit mythology guy sort of fades away for a moment. And you see that yeah. there's a real person under there. Yeah. Uh, now, 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 I can imagine... a Especially with a movie like Banshee Chapter, one of the things I really like is, and a good horror movie can get away with this, is how many questions are unanswered. Uh, how much stuff is, is left up to the, the viewer's imagination or interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not going to ask you, Blair, things like what does this mean or how should I interpret this scene. Um, but, but I do want to ask you, 
um, do you, in your head, ha- have an explicit idea of, of everything that happened? I mean, do you, as a, yes. as a script writer, as yeah. a director, yeah. do you know like whether Anne took the drug and what happened to Rennie and, yes. and the specifics yes. of what's in there? So, so in your head, there's a there's an objective truth about all of this, right? There is, there is, right. So okay. this is the way I, I, I structured it, and um, I want to say it's a little bit. Um, I think it's, it pulls a little bit from the style, I think, of how, you know, something like, uh, Jacob's Ladder was done, or even go, you can go back to like The Shining, where, I, you know, in my head, I, I kind of understood, okay, here's how the mechanics of all of this is happening. Uh, this is, but then I thought explaining that is, is a little bit dull. It's a little bit obvious to say, okay, this is, this is how it works. Because it takes away, I think, the eeriness and the creepiness of, the characters wouldn't know that, so why would the audience? And if the characters know that, it becomes unscary. And um, I think, you know, a, a, a big, I'm a big fan of the film Signs, the, the Shyamalan film. Mm-hmm. But I always thought what um, there's a bit of a letdown that moment that the, you know, alien takes center screen and we finally see, okay, this is actually just another thing that you can take down. It's another movie monster that you can just defeat this way. Um, and to me, I thought... I would rather construct it in such a way where all these details are actually hidden into the film, how it works, all of these, you know, little background, subtle touches. Um, the film has an answer if you, you know, dig through all the clues. And I think the idea being the people who would actually do that would be the people who are, I think, almost conspiracy type minded people <laughs> who are going to, you know, the type of people you watch that room, uh, 239 documentary. Right. Where the, the, the movie is constructed for those type of people. Um, all of the little touches are there, and I think you, if you watch carefully, some of the final scenes actually point uh, in, in the and there's some big signposts in the, some of the final scenes pointing at some of those clues. But um, I thought that would be a lot more um, rewarding long term because it, I don't think this this is going to ever be the type of film where you say, okay, we're we're targeting you know middle American blockbuster audience. So if you're not targeting those people, I think you're targeting a smarter audience. And for those people, I think I want to give them you know more credit to to be okay with some ambiguity at first and then to have some material to discuss about the film afterwards. Well, uh, then here is uh, then speaking of touches here then is the, the signpost that I think I, and I almost don't want you to say whether I'm right or wrong. I just want to tell you what I sort of came away with after a second viewing. Sure. And I think this is what you wanted me to come away with. So it seems to me like the implication is that Anne, in fact, was not given the drug, but that you reveal through very specific flashes of of uh, Rennie touching James, of uh, uh, Anne touching Callie, and right. of Olivia touching Anne, that it's passed on through touch, that it's somehow almost like it goes from being a a drug formula transmitted to a test subject to a drug extracted from a pineal gland to an infectious disease almost, uh, that, that you show flashes of people being touched that it somehow jumped vectors kind of right. um, and, and is going into physical touches and that Anne didn't actually take the drug. It, are I, you happy with me coming away with that interpretation? Absolutely. Okay. I think that is an absolutely valid interpretation of the material that you're seeing happening. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that, yeah, you want the idea that the characters wouldn't know that while while the film is happening, so you can't just um, point and say, okay, all of this stuff is what it is. But I did think, you know, there should be a lot of hints and 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 indicators that there's more to it than just, oh, I took a drug. Right. Um, there's something more going on here, and I think that's what makes it so eerie is the realization that it may not be so simple and easy to escape. Okay. 
Now, uh, I want to talk about specifically some of the uh, sort of your tricks of the trade here, uh, mm-hmm. things that you use to make it scary. First of all, um, so, so there, there are a fair number. There are probably, like, I don't know, maybe five or so, like super – what I find as a, a moviegoer – and I don't mean this to sound like a judgment, but but there are a lot oh. of kind of like annoying jump scares, Blair, where I always <laughs> feel like it's really – when a jump scare comes with a loud noise, I feel like it's someone who does that trick where they, they pretend they're going to punch at your face and they laugh at you because you, cause you, you blinked. And of course you're going to blink if someone does that. So how do you as a director, as a storyteller – you're okay with jump scares, I take it. Yeah. I mean personally, I, I – I enjoy films with jump scares with a caveat that I feel like th- I don't like the jump scares where they're looking through a house and a cat jumps out. No go cat for that. Scares. Right, right, right. Don't I, like I'm that. trying to think. Actually, you don't do any cat scares, do they're you? No they're all legit- right. That's they're good. all legitimate. That's it always good. has to be legitimate. And the idea <laughs> being, um, and in this case, whenever we do a, I think whenever there's a, there's that one of those jolting, and those are really, I think, designed to, Sort of make you feel this constant sense of anxiety. Um, it works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The idea is you want to, you want to make the audience feel as much of that paranoia and anxiety as the characters are. And the way I think we like to do that in this story is, you know, there's going to be jolting, horrible things jumping out of the dark at some point. But here, we often let you know that's going to happen, but you don't know when it's going to happen. Right. Right. Um, and for me, um, you know, I, it's like, uh, jump scares I look at as another tool, just like, you know, if you're talking about a gore or you're talking about, um, you know, there's so many great horror techniques you can use. And in this case, it was, that feels right for when you want to set this mood of dread. It can't just be one long slow burn of dread. There has to be genuine anxiety in the audience. And that anxiety has to come from, um, this feeling that anything can happen at any moment. Uh, and, and it won't be um, one of those films where it's always, it, always, in, always in the shadows, and you never get a, you never get right. anything coming out. Um, and I, you know, I I know that it's a horror fans, you know, they 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 sort of split on how comfortable they are with those scares, and I get that. But I did, I hadn't. It had been so long since I had seen a movie that had actually, you know, set them up properly and had a good payoff to them. Um, that it just felt like something I really wanted to go for on this one where, you know, um, there would be some genuine moments of jump out of your seat and, and scream. Um, so and to, that was where I, I think my, my feeling came from. And to be fair, actually, when I hear you talk about it, it does make me think that there is a sense of release after a jump scare. Like, okay, I made it through that. That was, you know, it's almost like getting off the roller coaster after the last dip or something. Like, you, 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 there's that dread, there's the jump scare, and then, you know, tension release is a classic dramatic technique. So right. without the jump scare, there's kind of no release, is there? <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, ultimately the movie itself is constructed like we're going to build a haunted house out of, you know, it's not going to be a haunted house about ghosts. This is going to be a haunted house of America's own cultural, you know, horrors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we are building a haunted house where the things that go boo are our own, you know, cultural and, you know, national misdeeds. Um, and that, I think that was the sort of purveying feeling here of, you know, as an audience member, you're going through this haunted house with these characters, only the haunted house is, you know, the United States. Sure, sure. <laughs> Now, uh, so some of the things that come out with the jump scares, let's talk about some of these. Uh, when I first saw the, the disfigured face bit, uh, also, is there any CG? Is all, is everything practical? 
it's it's a mix. It's okay, a mix. it is, it is so, a mix. Yeah. Most things are. So okay, so where did that disfigure? When I first saw the disfigured face, I was like, oh, that's goofy. But then after seeing the movie, it sort of kept creeping me out. And then when I saw it the second time and paused at the frame, I was like, that's not goofy. That's really creepy. I don't like it. Uh, <laughs> where did that come from? This idea is it like this idea of seeing melted faces on an LSD trip or what? What? Yeah, made I mean, you, well, it's, it's a mix of that. It's a mix of like. You know, I think it, it gives two sensations at once. One is that is a sort of a, a, an image you might see if you were hallucinating. And then the second feeling you might have is that is something wearing a human skin over it. And you're seeing something that isn't quite the person. It's something wearing the person. So it, it, it's, it was the, the image is designed to give you both sensations simultaneously. OK, uh, then tell me now a bit about the design of the, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, the, the James monster. Although I guess Callie's. Yes, yeah. I mean, the, the, we just paper. call it the entity. We, whatever okay. that is, we call it the entity. So the idea is that is it unmasked is the idea that that's something underneath. Uh, it, I, I, yeah, it's it's it's. Um, Whatever you never you never see the actual thing itself. You see the thing wearing somebody. Right, right. You get those, uh, those hands yeah. kind of like I, I can't help. That's another like the disfigured face kind of stands out as something that's haunting. Uh, just those long fingers also uh, stand out because that's pretty much all you really see of it. It's something big. It's something like human sized and it's got those crazy long, impossibly long, almost like Nosferatu fingers or whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it so, has that Nosferatu sort of uh, hunch to it. Um, yeah, 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 definitely. Um, and so, that was, yeah, that was, that was a, 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 I think that was part of the design there was one, it was just I wanted something that felt like my own sort of primal instincts of that's, you know, that's something terrible and bad to look at and, you know, definitely not quite right. Everything about it doesn't feel right. It feels very, very unsettlingly wrong. Um, and, uh, the, also the, the feeling is that it, it looks sort of, it's, it's in the similar shape of a human being, but it really isn't. Um, and it, that's something else. Where does that, obviously that was some sort of a costume or practical effect. Where does that now reside? Do you know? Uh, oh, you mean like the actual thing itself? Yep, like the actual practical effect that you used. Uh, so that was actually, um, I want to say... There may be a, a prosthetic or two for part of it, but actually, I think part of it was a um, completely CG. I'm trying ah. to remember how that, yeah, um, how that all shook out. So I think that there probably isn't a whole lot of practical props that most of it, I think, in that, I think what we did was we shot a practical sort of um, prop that really wasn't seen in the actual film itself. But it was used as a reference for the artist to paint over. Okay. Well, in yeah. that case, Blair, uh, huge props because I, I, I watched this and, and wondered about some of the CG during the latex, during the, the disfigured face stuff. But for the most part, I thought you were doing like a, this is all practical. So very well done with the CG. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. It's, it's subtle enough. I think that, you know, and that's, that's just like, I, you know, I hate it when the movie goes full CG and you go. Ah. It just kills uh, it, yeah. All right, fine, I'll suspend my disbelief. <laughs> well, also there's a sense, too, once you see it's CG, it, there's this sense that, oh, well, the, the director doesn't now have any real-world rules bounding him. Right, so yeah. anything can happen. So anything that does happen is not going to impress me. I mean, there's this sense of once you know CG is in there, nothing is going to wow you because anything can happen. And the and the actress playing the entity, weirdly enough, was um, she was actually performs all the scenes backwards. 
Um, so she's she's standing backwards and positioning her body. So what you're seeing is not actually a, like a person in a suit, but they're actually you know completely contorting their body. <laughs> wow! So you get that very strange. That's not a quite right as a person thing. Um, and you know she she was a dancer who was able to contort her body into those sort of strange positions where very clever. It feels just wrong enough that you can tell in that quick glimpse that isn't quite how a person should stand. That oh quite. yeah, because it's human, but it we it never occurs to somebody that someone's going to stand backwards. That's awesome. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome, player. Uh, uh, okay, so here's another uh, creepy thing that I, that made me wonder when I first saw it, but then as the movie went on, I decided okay, that works. Um. The, the signal, uh, the, first of all, the number station is great. I, I think everybody, you know, lost kind of paved the way for that and people have heard enough about it, but I love your take on number stations with the female voices and all. Um, it's just an ice cream truck. Uh, the, the, the music effect seems like it's just an ice cream truck and, and yet it does end up being creepy. Uh, you must have played with a lot of things for how to represent the signal. Uh, how did you settle on that? Um, that was a easy, easy decision. Um, what I did was I took a recording of a real number station and I played it. That was the exact sound design process for that. Um, okay. that was all real. The sound is all real. Um, that was just basically, I, uh, I had actually been listening to number stations for a long time and that just seemed to be the one. Um, wait, so is there a number station that has that ice cream truck tinkling music? Yep. That's a famous no number station. Yes. Oh, I did not realize that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, is, that is not that is not horror movie design. No, that's I think one of the reasons that feels so unsettling is that it's so real. Um, it uh, was a real recording, and um, we were you know grateful to uh, get the rights to use that because um, I think that brings a lot of the really sinister authenticity to that sound. Uh, and I don't think there was any sound design that could have really okay. created that feeling as well as the real thing does. Well, then, now this raises the question, how does one get rights for a number station if they're these mysterious things that nobody knows where they're coming from? How do you go about getting rights from a number station? There's these guys out there who, who, you know, who spend years recording and tracking them. Um, we had a database of about 200 to go through. And, um, I think that, you know, you might hear a few others in the film mixed in there. Um, especially in the, in the final act where, you know, the, the, you're, she's running through that bunker and you're hearing all those voices. Um, so there may be a couple of, but they're all real. That's uh, awesome. Okay. Yeah, they're all real, and just going through the archives of these guys who, you know, just make it their business to to hunt and track these things. Now, now, finally, I think you're the most effective creepy trick that that you've got up your sleeve here. Uh, there's a there's a great moment in the original Paranormal Activity where uh, Katie Featherstone is is just standing there. It's just a shot of her, and she says, "I can feel its breath." You know, she's mm-hmm. talking about the demon breathing on her. And, and we as the audience, we don't see anything. It's just an actress sitting there. There's no special effects in that scene. It's all about the actress selling a sensation or a feeling uh, to mm-hmm. us. And we can kind of vicariously watch her feel that. So there are moments where people say, you know, I can see it. It's coming. Or I can feel it. Or it can see me. Um, mm-hmm. where, where you just have, you're not showing anything scary, but you're showing someone expressing fear <laughs> this, this sensation of fear and something seeing that person. Uh, right. And, and that's, I just wish more horror movies would rely on good actors selling their own fear of something specific. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, I, and, go ahead, Jerry. I, yeah, no, I think, um, I think restraint is one of the, the best and perhaps poorly utilized tools in creating, um, genuine fear and, in, in, in creating, you know, that real sense of suspense in the audience. Um, I think, you know, when you think low-budget horror, oftentimes they go completely the opposite direction where they say, 
we're going to, you know, it's going to be blood and guts and bloodletting and you're going to see, you know, monster effects. And even though, you know, our performances and our story might be a little, you know, simple, we'll, we'll have all this great over the top gore and things like that. And, you know, while I enjoy a lot of those movies, I think they're a lot of fun. It doesn't necessarily make me, I don't feel fear. Um, but when I watch something like Paranormal Activity, I, that genuinely gets in my head because it does fire my imagination and you think, you know, you never see that demon in, in Paranormal Activity, but you kind of, everybody I think brings their own demon to that story just from the, 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 uh, the way they sell it. Right. Um, I, I have found, you know, horror is such a subjective medium where some people, I was talking about this with somebody else, where The Shining, right? Some people will tell you The Shining is one of the scariest movies ever made. And other people will say, I don't get it. It doesn't work on me at all. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's all about whether, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna try to, you're gonna try to activate something in the audience that is going to set something off. Um, and in this case, I think we realized there's no, there's no satisfying thing that you can overly depict that if the audience gets too much of it, they're just not gonna feel afraid of it. Mm-hmm. So you have to pick and choose just enough to show them and just enough to tell them and let them paint the rest of the picture of what it might be. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I think, I think for me, the horror movies that really work are the ones that do that. The ones that just imply something where you know, you get a glimpse, you get a feeling for what it is, but you never get a solid understanding of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you'd never say in props for this, by the way, you never say the title of the movie in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I love how you, Drop just enough information about it. There's a point where James says something about, well, that's the title of the, the chapter. You know, we have a chapter on that. And, right. And you make it clear that it's a female entity, uh, you know, that you, you see the, the drug being extracted from a woman's brain. Um, mm-hmm. Even Mark Linover's song, The Girl in the Window. Right. Uh, there, there's clearly this sense that it's a you know female entity and there's a chapter about the female entity. So you can just fill in yourself that a, right. you know, a banshee is a woman's spirit. So yeah. <laughs> uh, was there ever a cut or a moment where you're like, we're going to say the name of the movie? Or was that intentional? Like, we're not going to say the name of the movie in the movie. I think it was always intentional not to say the film. Very good. Title. <laughs> um, that was one of those where I think I, I, it may have even, I'm trying to remember if we, I think it may have been a last minute decision to put that scene in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, if I remember correctly, originally I even had saved that moment for the end credits. And then I thought, nah, that, that actually should probably go up front just because I think eagle eyed viewers will kind of want to get a hint of why it is called that. Um, and the title, you know, and again, most of this film is actually based on stuff that's real. Um, and that itself was real. There really was a, the experiment where the people in Demet Stripping did start calling it a banshee and they all started naming it that. Um, ah. yeah. And, you know, the way, the way we handle a lot of the real stuff, I didn't want to, you know, when you're writing the script, you say based on a true story. But then when I got to the film stage, I thought, you know, there's too many films doing that where they say it's based on a true story. And our film is, you know, although we did base so much of this on real stuff, it's kind of a hodgepodge of different true stories. The Anne Rowland character is fictional. So I thought uh, that part should probably be, you know, we'll just say we're fictional, but leave enough clues in here. So if people start Googling it, they'll find out just how much of this movie is true, which turns out to be quite a lot. Well, and I don't think you, you certainly don't need a title card like that when you make it so clear. I think it even opens with the footage of someone testifying. I mean, you, yeah. and it's clearly non-fake. Like that fella, I think his name was Dr. Moore, that, that one guy with the big old glasses who is sort of haltingly explaining that he didn't really have any guilt about it. Uh, yeah. That guy's face is so striking and you couldn't have 
I, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. I watched that and I'm like, that can't possibly be faked. That's got to be some real guy talking. Yeah, um, it is. and yeah, that's exactly. way more effective than any based on a true story title card. Right. I, exactly. I, I I think that was it. It was like one of those where if you if you give the audience enough and you you have respect for their intelligence, you don't hit them over the head with the nonsense that a lot of these movies do where they go based on a true story and then you go and find out you're like none of this shit happened. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> like, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, <laughs> Ed Gain never used a chainsaw. He didn't have any of that stuff. What are you talking about? This isn't how it happened. The end of these teens were going on their Leonard Skinner concert and got killed. None of this happened. Um, Thanks, Toby Hooper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, in this case, you wanted to be like, and I'm comfortable with the fact that it is a mix of fact and fiction, and I respect the audience enough to watch. And I think the movie only gets better when you Google around and find out, oh my god, almost everything in that movie was based on something that really did happen. Um, even down to uh, the Blackburn character. Um, mm-hmm. Where that was, you know, and again, big spoilers coming up, but um, so... The Thomas Blackburn character, of course, a lot of people immediately pick up on that he has a lot of mannerisms of Hunter S. Thompson and, and a lot of the, that, that sort of style. And that was intentional because you wanted a counterculture figure that people would instantly relate to, right? But he wasn't just based on that counterculture figure. We also looked at two others, which was um, Timothy Leary and the other one was um, Ken Kesey. And Ken Kesey himself and his life was actually much closer to the Blackburn character because Kesey was, when he was a grad student um, at Stanford, uh, pulled into this volunteer program that turned out to be the MKUltra project. And they, you know, started doing all these horrible experiments on him. And he took one of the chemicals from the program and spread it around the United States. And that's how we got LSD. Um, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it, now, if I say to the audience up front, <laughs> all of this shit is true, and this is how we got the storyline. It spoils the, you know, what's going to happen here part sure, of it. Sure, sure. But, truth be told, that part is pretty accurate. That That is really what that guy did. Uh, do you feel that uh, it... Because uh, one of the, the, the final reveal, kind of, is that Blackburn was a, a, a test subject, and that he, he survived, that he's the patient, I think patient 11. Yeah, uh, he's patient 11, yeah. Okay. And, and so that, that's kind of the, the, uh, I don't know about the payoff because there's so many more emotionally gratifying payoffs, I think, but that's sort of the final, uh, trick that you have up your sleeve, like the sort of the final reveal, uh, to, to the audience. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, that definitely connects. You know, and that, and I don't even want to call it a plot twist because it's not really a plot twist because the movie is so, you know, there's so many things, I think, complex little threads happening that that's more, that's one final piece to chew on for the audience. That's kind of what you want to give them. Say, okay, you've seen some stuff. There's a lot of questions here. We're going to give you one big piece of the puzzle and think about this. Does this maybe change some of the things we saw in the film? Um, and I think that's what that final moment is about, uh, to, to give you one last piece of information. And, and in, I think it's the only time in the movie where we, we give the audience a piece of information that the main characters didn't have. And, and uh, that too is, uh, so, and that also taps into what I said about this feeling of sadness from the movie is there's this sense that, oh, he was kind of doomed all along, uh, that, that he had the, you know, that this was something out of his control that he was subjected to. He's not right. some wacky guy. He's kind of a victim of this. Um, yeah. Now, now you say it's, a, it's information that the, none of the characters had, and that's true, but when I first saw it, I was like, well, why is, is, is the director threading in these, 
this this footage that the actress hasn't seen yet, presumably. Uh, so the second time I saw it, I came up with a rationalization. And I don't know if you share this, but when Olivia okay. shows up and she's got the tape and she's like, the boys at the lab pulled some stuff from this. I almost think of it as you're, you're watching the movie and then every now and then you're kind of cutting to what the guys in the lab, the video recovery lab or whatever, exactly are right. discovering. So That's at this exactly moment, right. someone somewhere in a lab is pulling this footage off of the tape. That's exactly right. So yeah, think, so. Yeah, in my head, that's exactly right. It's, yep. it's as that, as that tape is slowly being unraveled. Yes. It's, and, and we're finding new information. Um, that's, that's sort of just interrupting as, you know, just like the radio signal interrupts the, uh, radio. Yep. This, this weird videotape keeps interrupting the film with creepy, you know, moments from Chamber 5. Um, and, and each of those moments is designed to give a little kind of, um, pointer or clue towards the bigger, um, the bigger, I want to say, uh, forces at work in the yes. story. Right. Very good. Uh, now, now, finally, uh, Blair, I, I want to uh, ask you about something. Uh, among my favorite horror movies this year, uh, Banshee Chapter being one of them, one of the things that three of them have in common is that I came away from every single one basically haunted by a song. Uh, there's a the sequel to Last Exorcism is Last Exorcism Part 2, directed by Ed mm-hmm. Gastonnelly, a great Canadian filmmaker. And it mm-hmm. ends with a song uh, by a Canadian folk group called Timber Tambor called Demon Host. So after mm-hmm. seeing that, I, I love that song. I, I got the album. Um, I, I now love that group. And I listen to the song, and I think of Last Exorcism Part 2. Uh, yeah. There's an Adam Wingard horror movie that came out this year called You're Next. And there's mm-hmm. this cheesy Dwight Twilly pop song in it. Uh, that I, I now love and I associate yeah. it with your next. By the way, have you seen your next? No, you, you, it's, it's been a, one of those years where it's like, when you're putting out a horror film, you almost feel like, ah, you know, if I watch <laughs> other people's horror movies, you know, I'm not gonna enjoy them for what they are, I'll spend the whole time comparing and going, ah, is this better or, right, you know, is this right. better or worse than mine? Is this, you know, like, that's all I'll do. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I would, I was taking Banshee to, we were, I'll tell these film festivals and people would say, oh, what movies have you watched here? And I'm like, none, I can't enjoy a horror film while sure, I'm trying no, to I sit understand. there and push one out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you also, of course, uh, Mark Lenovers, and I don't know if I'm saying his name right. Yeah, Mark Lenovers, yeah. Uh, you use his music a couple times in the movie. Uh, mm-hmm. Girl in the Window plays in uh, Thomas Blackburn's house, and then, of yes. course, over the credits. Right. Holy cats, Blair, that song is just, that just got its hooks in me like crazy. Uh, how did you come across his music? And I, I, I presume you didn't write the song for the movie, but how lucky were you to find yeah. that song and, and the just just the lyrics and the tone of it. Um, how that was, you know, yeah, that was um, that was uh, a thing where our music supervisor had had. I guess he had worked with Mark Lenover, and I think a lot of his music, from what I understood, the master copies were destroyed in, in a house fire. From what I understood, um, but that was one of the the, the ones that had um, somewhat survived the fire. And he said, you know, we were looking for this sort of. I said, I want this sort of eerie. 1970s sounding stuff that was a little bit timeless. It didn't really quite come from any era, but it captured that sort of weird sensation, um, that funk, but yet creepy. And he, he found that and uh, Michael Davenport's our music supervisor. And he found this and I started listening to it over and over again. And the more I listened to it, I was like, these lyrics are a perfect kind of poetic metaphor for exactly what's happening in this story. 
Um, so let's see if we can incorporate this in some way. And the more I started playing with it, I thought this is, this is more than just something I want to stick in the background of a scene. I really want to bring this front and center because I think it does perfectly encapsulate what we have going on in this story. Um, so that was a, just kind of a stroke of luck. Um, you know, and, and I think for me, I was, I was really surprised that not more people had picked up on his music. Um, and, uh, who, who I, uh, he? I mean, what, what do you know about him? I, I don't know much about him. Okay. <laughs> to be oh. honest, I don't know much about him. Um, it, cause it all comes through the, you know, uh, our music supervisor, Michael Davenport. So, uh, it's, um, and I'm one of those weird people where, you know, so one of my all time favorite bands is Pink Floyd mm-hmm. and I know nothing about them. Um, and, <laughs> and I've intentionally kept it that way. I've kept myself in the dark. I don't want to know who these guys are. I don't want to know what their life story is. I don't want to know what those songs are really about. I just, you know, I bring my own crazy to the songs and i like to you know feel them that way and i don't want to ever have that ruined so i, I, uh, Clarence, I in the dark. i'm so glad to hear you say that because i'm the same way with music with movies i'm happy to get analytical and in a way it can kind of and, and to know about the people who are behind them and what they're working on next and what other things they've done it's almost the way some people follow sports with music it's all this divine mystery to me and i'm happy to, to leave it that way exactly um. exactly <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I, I'm sure you must know, Good Lord, Girl in the Window is just a fantastic way to end the movie. Uh, I yeah, just, yeah. just with the title card and the way the song starts and then the flashes of the, the desert. And I think you've got some shots of maybe uh, James and Anne in there, but just excellent stuff. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a, honestly, I, I can listen to that song over and over again, which is weird when you, when you use it in a song in a movie, normally you like never want to hear it again. <laughs> but now I can still listen to it on my iPad. I'm just like, yeah, there's something in there that's just really just, just right. some meaty piece of, thought ha- hanging in that song that I just love to hang on to. Right. Well, well, Blair, let me ask you. So, uh, are you a horror director? Is this, uh, is this something you intend to keep doing? Uh, it, did you just want to start out with a horror movie and then do different things? Uh, what sort of things, if you have your druthers, can we expect to see from Blair Erickson in the future? Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I don't mind being, you know, the label of horror director. I think, you know, I like to bend the genres a lot. Um, you know, I think in this one we mix a little, uh, sci-fi, you know, X-Files type stuff in with our, um, horror. Some people call it a thriller. I don't really, you know, I don't really have any problem with the horror, uh, moniker. I, I'm actually a huge supporter and fan of the horror genre. I think that, you know, horror does a lot of important things and is, you know, crapped on by Hollywood too often for, you know, uh, being a genre that really gets to do some more daring experimental stuff. Um, so, you know, I would say my next film, um, it plays with horror elements. Um, the way the next film works is it's actually, you do, you, you watch it and it works, uh, it, it, it's sort of like, it's a, either a love story or a horror story <laughs> as you're watching it. Um, and you're not quite sure which one it's going to turn out to be till the very end. Um, it's a, it's a, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and spill the plot because I, I just gave an interview to Ain't Cool News where I spilled the premise of the film. So I'll, I'll okay. spill the premise of the film to you. Good. Uh, this is, this is what I'm working on next. I'm actually working on a film, um, and we're, I think we're hoping to shoot uh, next fall. Um, but it's called In Memory. Um, and it follows, it takes place, opens in the, you know, 1996, mid 90s. And this, um, young, uh, young guy and girl are, have been kind of friends for a long time and they're in college. Um, in rural Pennsylvania, and their their friendship starts to develop into something much more, uh, much more intimate. And there's a very strong, I think, um, relationship that starts to really develop between them. And she is is killed very tragically um, as as it's starting to unfold. Mm -hmm. 
cut to now, you know, it's almost two decades later and his life has really been, you know, ripped apart by this thing that happened um, to him when he was first, you know, very young and falling in love. And one night she shows up at his house again, looking exactly as she did the night she was killed. Um, and it allows from there, that's the premise. And from there, we sort of get to this vehicle to explore, you know, what is lost? What is it? What do these tragedies mean? What does a life mean when it's cut short like that? Um, what, and then and on a bigger level, we get to play with, um, why is it that, you know, we, we, we like love stories to have happy endings and we're okay with horror movies having bad endings, but we're, what is it about horror movies that they're the only genre that's allowed to, to have an ending that doesn't quite expect, yet that's more honest to life. In life, we really don't know how things are gonna end, and sometimes they aren't pleasant, sometimes they aren't happy endings. Um, and getting to explore why that is so powerful. Um, and why that is so important to us as, as people to know, you know, whether or not our ending is going to be a pleasant one or not. Um, so it's a, you know, it's, it's that kind of story that really done, is done as a, it's, it's done as a kind of a nostalgic love letter to, um, nineties, um, cinema where we used to have a lot more, I think, genre bending, uh, stories like that. If you think back to, um, Ghost and Jacob's Ladder and um, Candyman and uh, Sixth Sense and Stir of Echoes, where it's okay to be have horror elements mixed in with you know drama and love stories and things like that. That was, I think, a, a great um, moment in cinema from the era. So the next one is definitely a, a piece that gets to explore and throw back to that sort of time. Um, and the uh, the fun and the suspense, I think, for the audience is that when you start to watch it and these horror elements are playing, but that you genuinely, you know, you genuinely care about this, this young couple and, and the tragedy that hit them. You want things to work out. You want things to have that happy ending like a love story should. But at the same time, there's these horror elements in the story and you keep thinking, but horror movies don't have those kind of endings. Right. So how is this going to turn out for them? Um, and so it, it, it is, uh, it's a piece that I'm really, you know, it's a, it's a very personal piece and it's one I'm very uh, proud to be working on. Um, so that is kind of the nature of what I'm exploring next. And so when people ask me, is it a horror movie? I say, I don't know. I don't know. It's going to all, I think it's going to, it's going to be a little bit of, um, everything. I, I sort of feel like horror is, um, I, I like to think that it's getting more acceptance and that it, there's less of a stigma with somebody saying something is a horror project or a horror movie with, with things like Walking Dead and American Horror Story with, and, and certainly the stuff that James Wan is doing with horror, A, making a lot of money and B, finding its way to more mainstream outlets. Uh, I, I like to think that stigma is lifting. Um, yes. So, so you know what, Blair? Embrace the title. Don't be ashamed of it, by golly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being. You know, there's nothing wrong with working in horror. Some of the, you know, some of the best writers and directors um, do horror films, and uh, you know, I don't care that Hollywood ghettoizes the genre. It is still, a, it is still a wonderful genre that is, you know, able to do subversive uh, commentary on our social problems yep. that other genres don't touch. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Well, uh, Blair, I wish you the best of luck with that, uh, and we'll, we'll uh, hopefully we'll hear that it's uh, shooting this fall. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I invite everyone, uh, Banshee Chapter is available for video on demand. Uh, you have a limited theatrical release coming up, is that correct? Yeah, January 10th. Um, it opens in Los Angeles, and I think there'll be some other cities, uh, other major markets that'll, uh, there'll be a theatrical going on there. So, you know, anybody wants to go see that in the big theater with, 
you know, it's it's kind of fun at the theater because people, you know, jump out of their seats and there's lots of big screams and stuff. Well, you but, can't uh, you can't pause it too and and step away from the screen for a while. Like <laughs> this idea of Banshee Chapter would be one of those great horror movies where you're, you're forced to deal with whatever you're putting on the screen. Because I I right. paused it many times. Like I had to, especially the first time I watched it. I'm a big baby about jump scares. So yeah, I encourage you uh, go see this in the theater if it's playing near you. <laughs> Definitely. Exactly. So. Well, yeah, th- thanks, thanks so much, Tom, for, uh, you know, really, uh, for helping us, uh, get our little, uh, horror tale out there and, uh, helping us, uh, push it out. Absolutely. And I wish you the best of luck with it, and we'll see everyone for our regularly scheduled podcast, uh, later in the week. Uh-huh.